0: Thank you for tuning in to the mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stared on moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Hey all, it's me, Beshoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal One by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with Meal One. Visit CreaturesOfHabit.com, Creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. Welcome and thank you for joining the MILE40 podcast. I'm excited to share the message with you all. And I'm especially excited to welcome Dr. Andrew Moad on as one of my very first guests to today's podcast. Dr. Moad is a chief medical resident at NYU Langone in Long Island within internal medicine. He is a collegiate athlete played college football at Carnegie Mellon University outside of Pittsburgh. And he has a story which I feel could really hit the pulse of what MyO40 is trying to get at with regards to really diving in to some of those pit moments that we come across in our lives and talk about the lessons learned and how they help us build up to that peak. So Dr. Moad, thank you for coming on board.
1: Thanks for sure. I appreciate it. Of
0: course. Just for everybody out there, I've known Dr. Moad since childhood, been good friends and been through lots of ups and downs together. However, I'm going to dive right in. One of the things that connected Andrew and I is a couple of years ago, I shared that I was reading The 48 Laws of Power. And immediately upon sharing that, Andrew didn't hesitate to reach out right away and give me his two cents. So I picked up the book. You know, I haven't read it in a while and made sure that I uh, had it here for for easy reference. But I want to ask you really quick with regards to that book in particular, what about it stood out that, you know, really kind of compelled you to double down on making sure that I
1: I had an idea of what I was reading? So Robert Greene is the author. He, you know, he's wrote a couple other books in similar genre, but something that he strives to do is support everything with objective, tangible facts. That's something that, you know, I love as a physician, and I sort of parlay that to everything I do in life. And really the premise of the book is that anything that happens in the book, any of the 48 laws that uh, they discuss, they have a clear example. And uh, Robert Greene makes it a point to use examples from hundreds of years ago. The fact that there are these laws that they are proving were in act and history repeats itself from hundreds and thousands of years ago, and they still apply today in the modern world that we that today is crazy with technology. And, you know, a lot of the times they didn't have this shows at the core of these principles is something that's part of human nature. So it doesn't matter if someone who is a PhD student versus a high school student, everybody can relate to it to, you know, some extent. And then there's a tangible example that it's it's one thing if you make hearsay up or you you have an opinion, facts are facts. And that's what I love about it.
0: No, that's a really good point that you bring up. I I think that the principles seem to transcend time. But after I read it, I was thinking the same thing in terms of why there's a sense of appreciation for the ideal shared. Where I struggle is really around kind of what you alluded to earlier the fact that life is now moving at an even quicker pace than before with regards to technology across fields, across industries, even in our personal day to day life. And so I, I'm not saying that they will not continue to withhold the test of time, but it really makes you wonder. You know, are these principles, you know, really the guideline um, that you know we as a society have been looking for? Is there anything
1: else out there that you think can ground us um, like this, or that you've read or that you've come across? To answer that, I, I don't think it's the guideline for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about when people pick up the book, the first thing they think about is. Oh, you know, the word power and power can be used with a malicious connotation. I look at it as this is a book that has guided a lot of leaders. So it's not for everybody, but it's people who want to be leaders. I knew at a very, you know, early age that, you know, I don't like to just be on the team. I like to, you know, be the captain of the team. And um, I would recommend it. I think it's, it's a good guideline of principles for someone who is in a leadership position, who's hoping to get into a leadership position. And, you know, there are some things in the book that people will say, you know, are very, they'll use the word selfish when it comes to power or dictatorship, but, you know, as you know, a lot of the things, as long as it's not done maliciously is how the real world operates. And, you know, once you, once that switch turns on, you know, and if, and if you're in a leadership position, you've been a couple years in your, your job, um, you know, you've become an adult. You'll see that, that that's how the real world works, whether you like it or not, unfortunately. That's a fair point. Um,
0: so one of the things that I recall when I was reading it as well, um, you know, I, I read a lot of Adam Grant. Um, and Simon, Smith, um, and a lot of their books around leadership. And the one element that seemed to be missing from the 48 Laws of Power was the focus on um whether it be empathy or compassion as a leader. And and you kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit too. And, and and so I look at 48 Laws of Power as being the science behind leadership. Um, and some of these other books maybe alluding more to the art form. Do you believe, um, you know, that there's a healthy dose of art that should be included in that as well, or do you think that, you know, success can simply be defined by the science?
1: No, I, I definitely think that there, you know, there's a piece of art. I, I love art. I wish I could, you know, be a great artist. Uh, I didn't get those, you know, talents. It doesn't mean that I can't learn them. Yeah. But I do believe that what makes people more individual or have a better idea than someone is an artistic approach everybody uses the same guidelines everyone's on social media but you know someone has a million followers and someone has a thousand they might be posting the same exact videos about cars but someone does it in an artistic way or they have an individual individuality aspect to to their work that differentiates them but they're still within the same guidelines so Um, you know, even in medicine today, you know, we're all given tools to treat patients. Does it mean, you know, I have to use the exact same antibiotic as everybody else. I can use one in the same class, or some doctors might want an antibiotic course to be five days. Some might want seven days based on, you know, the complexity of a case. So, you know, art is what gives you, I look at it more as flexibility and the individuality aspect to it. Um, but People need guidelines, so I that's think fantastic. you need a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That outlook, I, I appreciate that context. Um, so, you know, you talked about determining at a young age um, that y- your individual calling was one of, of leadership, regardless of what field you were going to go down, right? And and so, you know, athletics was a big part of your life growing up. Huge, I, huge I, part. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, when you were in high school and then going on to college. Um, would love to talk a little bit about your experience in college. Um, you know, again, getting a scholarship, going to Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, leaving the area that you grew up, grew up in, which is not necessarily, you know, abnormal. A lot of people go away to college, but, you know, you were going, uh, to play football. Um, and, and so if you can kind of share a little bit about that experience.
1: Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, you know, you know, getting into the leadership aspect was, you know, being on a team sport. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, playing sports and then specifically a team sports, you know, this isn't singles tennis or golf, you know, you know football, uh, track in the winter to get ready for the lacrosse season in high school, Um, and I used that to sort of give myself the skills to figure out, okay, how does it work? I can get the good grades. Now, can you get the good grades while being on a team and having three hours less than everyone else, because you have to go to practice. So I was able to do that in high school, um, you know, based on my academics, you know, I was able to parlay that to Carnegie Mellon, which now brought me to a place, which was, you know, way higher academically um, and having to maintain sports. So it was a huge, huge challenge, uh, in the beginning, um, you know, getting less out, having to go to practice with, you know, you know, people who are seniors and four years into college, and you're a little freshman, and then you got to go study, and then you got to take a test on Friday, extremely challenging. Um, it definitely took me a year just to figure out, that balance, it was much harder than high school, but I still knew that, you know, even when I was struggling academically, because it was, it was, you know, very hard in the beginning. And, you know, I'm, I'm always straightforward to to tell people that it didn't click for me right away. I knew that the value of being on a team would benefit me on a long run. And it, it most definitely has.
0: Got it. Um, and with regards to, um, your your time on the team, Um, you know, what did you learn playing at the collegiate level that maybe differentiated from prior levels of sport? Um, You know, I have to imagine there was an elevated level of intensity in terms of expectations, um, you know, both in terms of discipline on a day-to-day basis, but also, you know, in terms of physical form.
1: Yeah, I love once you went back, you started, you go right to the bottom of the totem pole. Day one, you're holding a pad, you know, a 250 pound linebacker is smashing you in, you know, in just basic drills. And you're like, wow, I'm nowhere close to that. And then also makes you appreciate how, you know, how much more respect you have for D1 athletes and NFL athletes and whatever sport they are, because they have brought their craft to a whole new level. And the amount of work it takes to start back as a freshman and climb back up to that starting linebacker who's you know on the senior, you knew it was gonna be so challenging. Um, you know, way more time in the weight room, way more time studying plays, way more time, you know, just balancing because it's not your full-time job, you still have school. Um, but that shock was also exciting, and that that it's sort of giving you the motivation to be like, all right, I'm about to climb up the ranks again and do this all over again. But, you know, when you climb the ranks in, you know, each level, it's so much more enjoyable when you win, when you, you know, are part of the team, when you're playing, than when you're just, you know, a spectator.
0: Is there one takeaway in particular from that experience at the collegiate level that you feel has really kind of transcended it and, and gone on with you to the, to now, you know, in terms of your professional life, in terms of your applications, anything in particular, an experience, um, you know, it, whether it be in the locker room, whether it be on the field, um, that, that kind of stood out.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it, it might not be as athletic as you think, but I've learned, you know, the smartest people on the field said the least. Um, so, you know, always say less than necessary is like one of the biggest things that stuck with me is our captain. Um, he did not speak all the time when he did speak, you knew to listen, you knew that it was important. Um, and he was almost always right, whether it was, you know, where the play is going or to change assignments or an audible. And it, it always stuck with me and, you know, something that, you know, I try to to do as well later on. You know, I think in my real world. I think that's great. I, I think that
0: you know, real leaders lead by example more so than by their words sometimes, and 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 so it says a lot about someone when you know that when they do speak, you know, they command respect, and everybody's kind of all ears, looking around, and and you know, waiting for instruction. Um, and I think that's. Um, definitely a good characteristic behind, um, you know, a leader who's going to be taking you to war essentially, you know, in in the context of a game. Um, well, I, I want to dive a little bit into, um, what, uh, what happened in the years post, um, your post your experience at Carnegie Mellon. So if I recall correctly, uh, you graduated and then, you came back to New York, you finished up a master's and then, uh, you had applied to med school and, um, gone to med school in the Caribbean. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love to touch base on this, you know, especially and to anyone who's in a similar position or has same similar thoughts. Um, you know, I wasn't sure about med school right away. You know, I did my thing in undergrad. I think it's, you know, comical that we send 18-year-olds to college. Um, I don't think they're mature enough at that point. Um, I definitely know that if I went to med school right out of college, you know, I'm not a physician right now. That's one. Two, um, the, the biggest key I ever did before going to med school was that I worked. I worked for two years. I had work experience. I had, to me, I don't even care what the job is. I look at it as real world experience. It's something I look for in applicants today and I will the rest of my life. Um, And during that time, I was doing the master's at the same time. So I used to work from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, you know, helping run a nursing home out east. Then I'd sleep for a couple hours during the day. Then I'd go to Hofstra from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. and then drive out east and work. I did that for two years straight, um, you know, very, very key experience. And, you know, I was at the end of that experience, you know, I was offered a six figure job to stay and run this nursing home. Um, and I, I was pretty close to taking it. And my mentor at the time, um, you know, he he always used to say, it's easier to walk down a ladder than climb up one. He said, you know, you've wanted to go to med school. I just needed that, I think, final push. I, I think at that time, I wasn't, um, I didn't think I could do it, you know, at, right, right then and there. And um, he gave me that final push to sort of go to med school and say, you know, you can come back and you can be the medical director and you can do everything you're doing plus more. And, you know, at that age, it's like a lot of money to turn down when all your friends are still, you know, in college or barely making any money. But I knew deep down that I always wanted to do it. Um, I just needed that, that little piece. And I think the maturity I gained during having to manage working and working a night shift and class and sleep and decided to get a 100-pound German Shepherd in between all of that was very you know, inspiring to me. Pretty much I took all my money that I saved up And I had enough to pay for three semesters of med school in the Caribbean. I told myself, you know, figure it out. Um, I literally just paid cash for three semesters and started. I took a cruise ship down to the Caribbean. I didn't even fly there. Hmm. Um, Signed some paperwork in St. Kitts, got off a ship, and spent the next, you know, 18 months there. And, you know, God works, wonders as well. And, you know, two months into, to, you know, I, I was able to pay for the, up to the third semester, halfway through this whole thing, you know, my school got federal loans and I was able to continue my journey. But the whole thing also helped me go down there with that back against the wall mentality. This is your money, liquid cash. If you lose it, tough luck. You don't even have a degree after this. You need to survive. You need to, you know, be a leader around your peers and and figure it out. And, you know, all all my experiences leading up to that, whether it was football, sports in high school, working, all contributed to even just getting to that point and succeeding because I lost a lot of people around me who tried to do the same thing.
0: Yeah. You know, everyone has their own story, but I feel like when I hear you talk about your, your path to med school and getting to med school, I feel like you truly were running your own race, you know, amongst people who maybe all were doing a lot of the similar steps to get to where they wanted to go. Meaning that there's a lot of people who, you know, were pre-med majors who always wanted to go to med school, who perhaps couldn't get into a med school that they wanted to, who then just applied and then got in. And then, you know, again, we're just kind of just going down the course, but I felt like you were going at it from a different angle because you had been strategic about making the decision. Um, but also, you know, it's that back against the wall mentality that, that you talk about, which probably shaped you, um, you know, as you were going through med school, um, you know, I, you, you know, the population down there more than, than I do, of course, would you say that that's a fair statement that, you know, you were kind of running your own race out there mentally? Oh yeah. Um,
1: you know, one of the 48 laws of powers is plan everything, plan as much as you can plan to the end. Um, the best quarterbacks paid in Manning, you can, what does he do? He plans, 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 and then you have three audibles to me. That's, I love that, you know, that's why he's one of my favorite players because you have to think of every obstacle that you might have. And when you outthink and you think of all your potential, and I'm one of the best at thinking of the worst case scenarios. And then I build up and I have to do that in medicine too. I have to think about what's going to kill you first, rule that out. And then I can, you know, sit back and relax and, you know, figure it out from there. So I've had that in different aspects of my life. This was a huge experience of that where, um, you know, planning was, you know, I took the risk about taking these two years off, but I made sure that the the gap that I filled it was, was strategically better than, you know, the random person who is, you know, just wanted to go to a research lab and hoping that I'll just put that on my resume and that's different. Yeah. Um, you know, I did a combination of work and academics, plus some projects on the side, but it really made a difference when I was applying and, just to, to finish it. Cause you could apply and get in and it means nothing if you can't finish it.
0: Of course. So, you know, you talk about it in terms of you are truly investing in the total package from, you know, an education and from, um, you know, a strategic business perspective as well. And when I say business, I mean the business of, of you, um, yeah. in terms of how you, you kind of looked at it. Um, and, and you talk about, you know, planning and planning for the worst. And and so I'm going to segue a little bit in the sense that, um, you know, you had probably thought you would get down there, you'll be head down, you'll be, you know, working your ass off um, and come back home with a degree and then, you know, figure it out from there from a professional perspective. But, um, you know, I, I know, we talked about it, you had an experience down there, Uh, and it kind of maybe shifted your trajectory, um, one way or the other, um, not necessarily in terms of your job prospects, but just in terms of maybe your overall outlook. So let's dip into that a little bit. Um, you know, I'll let you paint the picture, um, and then I'll fill in the gaps with some questions.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, it's a story that I used to never really share with anybody and, you know. Now I do and I, I I think it took time for me to get to that point. And um, you know, I'm always happy to talk about it because again, I love things that are teach people and can inspire people or people have questions. And when you're when you haven't experienced something, you need to hear it from someone else, and it's still not the best. But you know, back to to, to med school, you know, this was the Caribbean. Um, this is, you know, yeah, I'd say, you know probably seven, eight years ago at this point. And, um, you know, everything was going great. You know, first semester I struggled. Um, I watched, you know, I started with 94 people and 18 people made it to graduation on time to give you some background. So it was very survival of the fittest, which I loved. but it became literally survival of the fittest one night. Um, you know, third semester, I remember I had a a psych test the the next day and, um, you know, I lived in a four person complex. Um, You know, I lived up top. My roommate had his own sort of condo next to me. Um, There was a gentleman on the floor and this uh, young female that just moved in to start her first semester. Um, We're three weeks into the, the semester. And one night we came home from studying in the library and I heard probably the most, you know, vicious screams I've ever heard in my life. Um, You know, me and my roommate, uh, I was actually in the shower. I came out in a towel. Um, I looked at him. He looked at me. We knew something crazy was happening. We ran down the stairs. Um, I could hear this girl screaming, petrified in her room. Um, There was a struggle going on. Uh we used to go spear fishing a lot since it was a Caribbean. So we ran, I ran back upstairs in my towel. Um we took uh our spearfishing knife, which was like a huge blade that we used to wear in our ankles, ran down. Um I shattered her window. We unlocked the door and we walked into um this gentleman stabbing her uh repeatedly. Um, you know, I went after him with this knife. He managed to escape through a window. Uh, We were put in a situation. Do we go after him versus, you know, uh, rush this girl to the hospital? You know, keep in mind, I'm not a doctor, you know, two and a half semesters into med school yet. You know, they don't teach you what to do in these situations. You're not supposed to know. Yeah. Um, So we, you know, we picked her up. My friend grabbed his car. We rushed her to the hospital. Um, You know, she underwent a bunch of emergency surgeries um in the middle of the night in the Caribbean and you know you can imagine what that's like compared to healthcare in the US you know you have to call and wait for the surgeon to come in and the staff isn't all there um you know she was bleeding we were just trying to keep her alive at that point in the car um and then you know thankfully she made it um she needed to get medevac back to out of the country but Um, You know, she had some complications along the way, but, you know, she survived and she, you know, thankfully I'm still in touch with her. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty traumatic experience. And, you know, to kick to to sort of the cherry on top was you got to take a test the next day. You have a crime scene unit at your house. You have detectives coming at you every day. There's a manhunt. There is you know, so many different factors to this that, um, were pretty crazy. And I would never expect the average person to even have to go through this or want to, but, you know, that's real world stuff. And it was a lot to figure out and, uh, navigate. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's talk really quick about the instincts that set in, you know, the instinct to break through the window, uh, to get in there, to, um, Essentially, you know, take action physically um, against the suspect um, at the time. Um, you know th- that 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 is pretty, you know, just really commendable instinct. Uh, but also, it's not necessarily. Um, something a lot of people would do a lot of people may have be, would have heard the noises and called the cops um called the noises and and maybe banged on the on the window and and panicked uh but you you really dove right in. What do you think took over you in that moment?
1: yeah, I mean, you know the 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 screams is something that you knew was one of the most horrific things happening. It was that different. I could, you know, I could still recall that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I thought of her as a person and I was, you know, almost angry to, to think that this was happening. You know, looking back, people asked me, you just, you know, ran into this room naked in a towel. What if he had a gun? What if he came after you? And, I was ready to handle it. I didn't, you know, I, there was nothing going to stop me. If honestly, if she wasn't bleeding, I felt like I was running a hundred miles per hour to catch this guy. And, you know, when you saw what he did to her, you know, it gets you, you know, I guess, you know, I, I understand both sides that you, some people, you know, would be petrified and run the opposite direction um you know there were some yeah, you, people you that ran directly into the blaze yeah and I, I think that's part of you know why I'm in the field I am now um you know I think that's what policemen are and firefighters and you know a lot of people who don't sit behind the desk that's why it's you know painful to me to hear you know stigmas in any of these fields because I see it day in and day out and the population that can handle these jobs is not normal. It's not normal for for people to do that. I, I don't know. I think that's a switch that God gave me. And you know, I, I my my upbringing was you know pretty good, and my parents really instilled the right things. But you know, there were a lot of you know physiological and you know you know spontaneous components of this whole situation that you know, I never was tested like that sports and everything before that never gave you that. Yeah. It was an athletic type of situation involving, you know, yeah,
0: you had to, to get out of binds before, but they were never life or death kind of Yeah. for the moment, you know, wrong turn and things can go really already kind of, kind of bind. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the weeks and months after that. Obviously, it was an extremely traumatic experience. You're extremely level-headed and you can definitely compartmentalize, Mm -hmm. you know, situations. And your number one priority was to make sure that she was okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but let's talk about your mental state in those weeks and months after. Let's talk about um, the environment around you. Um, you know, were you necessarily looking over your shoulder now because you were in an unfamiliar environment? Again, you weren't home. You were, you were in a beautiful island in the Caribbean, but it's still not your home. It's still not your environment. Um, let's talk about that a little bit and and how, um, you carried forth with that, you know, to finish off your career, um, you know, in med school.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think you just touched upon it. That part was huge. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't want to name specific places and people, but, you know, there was very little support given to us as the people involved, um, you know, constantly looking over my back, machete in the car, machete under my bed, switching apartments, getting new locks, um, you know, they ended up, uh, you know, insult to injury, they catch this gentleman who happened to live pretty close to the whole situation, and was sort of scouting out this house for a little while, Um, knew specifically that the three guys in the building weren't home, which is when he timed it. But then I, the the repercussions were, you know, I had people on the island that, you know, almost looked at us like we were the reason that their friend was charged with attempted murder and you know we were getting looks in the streets people would say things to us very hard to go to the grocery store or go to dinner on a friday night because um you know people people would people knew and it was a small island um people tried to almost like put us to blame that it was our fault which is you know very backwards but um I had to compartmentalize that because I, like I said, I knew she was okay. She was off the Island. You know, me and my friend were stuck there. Um, You know, I took all my life savings cash and said, I got to figure this out. Um, I knew I could handle it, which is part of the reason, you know, where I went to the Caribbean, you know, they all, they all, all these, you know, administrators always ask you before during your interviews. You know, how do you live by yourself? Can you handle it? I knew that part wasn't going to be the issue for me. Um, I'm always good about being independent, and you know, I'll survive a, a week in the desert if I had to, just from ingenuity and 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 you know, my mental. But it was tough. Um, didn't get much support. Really relied on like a close friend group um, to sort of look after each other. Um, you know, they, you know, people were trying to ask about it all all across campus, but it probably didn't stop until I left. But I just kept telling myself, this is what I wanted. I have no choice. Um, I, you know, it helped that I actually didn't have a choice. I pretty much just had some money that was going to run out and there was a ticking time bomb. And if I missed the opportunity, I knew I wasn't capable of you know, sort of reinventing myself at that point. So that's, that's really what pushed me through.
0: How long did you keep the story to the vest close to the vest?
1: So, I mean, I, I, you know, I come from a big family, I didn't want to burden anybody, you know, people handle trauma in many different ways, as you know, as a doctor, I know that. Um, But it, you know, I think it's fine as long as you, you know, everybody handles it differently. And it's how does it affect your daily life? If you're still able to, you know, go in and take your tests and pass them and move on and study for the next big exam and, you know, mentally you can, you can handle it. You know, I I think that's okay. If you need to go talk to somebody, I think that's okay. If you need to get the heck out of there and completely pause everything, I think that's okay. Every case is different. I chose that, you know, I didn't need to, I felt I didn't want to burden anybody else. Um, a lot of my younger siblings were going through college and school and trying to get, you know, so I didn't want to bother my family. Fast forward uh, a couple of years, you know, I told myself I would tell them after I get off the island. Then I got off the island and I'm studying for my next big test. So I pushed it off again. Then I said, you know what, I'll tell them, after I passed this test, so they know, you know, everything is good now. And then I passed the test. I did great. And then I just, you know, it, as you, as the time went on, you know, and, you know, she was able to restart her life and she wasn't even in a better situation than where she started, you know, there was less need to bring it up. One day I shared it with some of my friends here in uh, New York and, um, you know, sort of a private moment, but just letting them know what, what happened, you know, they were all pretty shocked. They all sort of, you know, respected my wishes to just keep it private. Uh, and then one day, uh, my sister was working somewhere and a, 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 you know, a colleague saw an article and said, Hey, you know, your brother saved that girl's life. And my sister said, what are you talking about? She came home one day and asked me, you know, so-and-so said, you saved this girl's life. What is he talking about? And I was like, oh, wow, this came back to me. How is this? And this is years later. So I sort of shut her down. And then um, I guess, you know, you leave it to your little sisters. They did a little more digging. And uh, I always dreamed that, you know, when I matched into residency, I was going to take my family out to Peter Luger's, Cash, Brooklyn. Um, I took out a lot of cash, Only my family members there. You know, I'm about to give a speech and, you know, my sister decided to stand up and start crying and tell my parents everything that she knew had happened. And at that point, I was like, all right, you guys want to hear it? And I shared it with them, and you know, I got a lot of jaw drops, and you know, it, it was a pretty crazy evening for a joyous event. But so approc- it sort of came full circle, yeah.
0: Approximately how many years went by since it happened
1: to that dinner? Um, so probably like two, two and a half years. Yeah.
0: So when in in you know right after it happened, and you're kind of processing it. And of course, like we said, you have the ability to compartmentalize it, but were you in any way kind of reevaluating where you wanted to go at that point? Did it ever cross your mind that like, this is, this is wild. Like, I, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't know why I came to this Island. You know, like, did you still kind of see yourself being in the seat that you are now as a leader within the medical community?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I just knew I always wanted, you know, I was so what, you know, those first two semesters even further solidified. I want to be a doctor. This is my calling. I enjoy this studying sucks, but it's cool. Like, you know, so it's almost, it was almost worse that I got a taste of it that I liked it. And then I had this situation literally right in the, you know, we were on trimester. So it was right in the middle of my whole thing. So it was enough for me that I was like, no, I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to leave this. Like I, I want this. I hated that, that the situation I was in, but you know, I was still so angry what this guy did to her. And I wasn't afraid anymore. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, I, I don't believe in stress. It's a, it's one of, it's a line that people think is like crazy, but you know, there's some science behind it. If anybody wants to like go down a wormhole you know, physiologically, you know, adrenaline and stress was created for you to have just enough for flight or flight, right. To run from that tiger that's chasing you from that animal that was going to attack for the quickness at the water hole. Once you cross a limit where it it, it's, you know, you're too stressed out. It only burdens you. The curve is literally down. So I knew, you know, my counterpart, he definitely had a harder time dealing with the situation. Um, again, everybody is different and it definitely took a toll on him. He had to take a leave of absence and you know we supported him as best we could. But I also knew that the situation is over. I have to survive. If you stress too much, you're just going to inhibit yourself and it's just going to be detrimental. So I was able to use that. And I had some medical background at the time that, you know, and I and I and I researched things and I thought about it. And, you know, it wasn't comfortable, but it was, you know, it was definitely doable.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly when it comes to the idea of of stress and, and and the way that you, you know, described it. And I really think it comes down to being able to understand in that moment, where the controllables are. Right. And like you said, the, it was behind you. It was done. The, what what was done was done. Uh, um, you know, as, as tragic and as unfortunate as it was, you know, at that point you could really only look up, um, uh, yeah. and kind of move forward from there. Would you say that was one of, if not the hardest moment or the hardest experience that you've been through personally?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, there's, it, it's so different. And, you know, you know, I push for, you know, it's something even when I I started here, you know, I think every doctor should jump on the ambulance and go to the crime scene or go to the car accident and watch the firefighter and the EMS pull them out. You know, you, you know, some of the things that it bothers me is that everyone just like gets a patient on a bed and Here they go. They're wrapped up nice in the blanket. They're in the gown already. You have no idea what it takes to get this was up. This was the situation where I saw, you know, I saw an attempted murder. I saw someone completely, you know, stabbed 15 times, you know, how do you stabilize them? How do you save them? Oh, by the way, you're, you know, the clock is against you and we need to do some invasive action or else they're going to die. And then we'll get them to the hospital and there's still a danger out. You know, this is what, you know, your first responders when you hear that word, that's what they actually do, you know, Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So, um, that, that component will always stick with me. And you're never taught that. Like, you know, even, you know, they probably train secret service for all these situations that they never go through, but it's, how do you respond when it happens live um, you know, going back to sports a little bit too. I also, you know, just to touch base on what you just said, I always were had coaches that were a big believer in the next next person up. Injury, you lose your best player. Next, next it happened already. So that was also a very key piece that sort of I knew that you know that that's going to help me get through this. Got it.
0: Got it. No, I mean, I can definitely see how, um, you know, in hearing the story for the first time recently. Um, it helps explain how your perspective has been molded over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, now I see it in how you practice on a, on a day to day. Um, and, you know, one of my personal experiences with you was, um, at the, um, New York city marathon medical tent. I know you you were the lead over there this year. Um, did you lead it in previous years or was this the first year that you led it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I lead the group from our hospital. It's been expanding every year back in 20, my 2018 or, or 2019. Did we have it? I forgot which year we got canceled, but, um, you know, each year I've, I've been here at NYU, I've, I've done it. Uh, my sisters have been volunteering even before me, so I'll give them credit too. Um, that's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, we missed out, the, the, the other year, but, you know, I was happy to be back this year. And, um, that is probably one of the most inspiring athletic events. Um, and I remember the first time you crossed it and just being in the room with the international people and the stories. I never, I've never forgotten that so far. And it's one of the things I, I, I really influence and push people like you have to come experience this.
0: I love that. No, um, you know, for all the listeners out there, I've been very blessed in the sense that every marathon I've run, at least every New York City marathon I've run, I've been able to find a MoAD at the finish line uh, to fall into their arms and 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 get treatment. Uh, and and um, you know, while I you know would suffer minor injuries um, along the way, um, you know, I've been able to cross the line every time. Um, I did have a question for you with regard to, um, you know, some of the more severe injuries that maybe you saw at that finish line. Um, I imagine a huge contingency of my, my listeners are, you know, going to be part of the running community. Um, and so, you know, firsthand without scaring them too much, but also keeping it interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen everything, you know, you could think of, um, We actually have to train with we we run some we've created some simulations in our sim center here in the hospital. Um, I've seen you know an asthma patient who comes in that you're about to start treating, and then she mentions, "Oh, by the way, I'm 18 weeks pregnant." And you're like, "Whoa!" Um, You know, I we've seen people that their body temperature you know gets either too hot or too cold that you're throwing them in the dunk tank or you have 10 bear huggers on them and you're hoping they just come up, you know, one degrees and you you see numbers that you never see in the hospital. Um, you know, there's been some serious ones, you know, people seeing a couple of people finish the finish line and have a complete heart attack and they end up at a hospital, um, you know, getting stents, um, after, you know, it's crazy to think that someone healthy enough to run a marathon might have some underlying disease, but, you know, they push through, you know, those people are amazing. They push through, they finish, you know, they probably have so much, you know, adrenaline and feeling at the time that they don't know what's going on, but, you know, they sort of collapse at the end and their body gives out, um, you know, the shin splints, a lot of podiatry issues, um, um, you know, a lot of skin issues when it comes to abrasions and, um, but you see a little bit of everything, but the craziest thing is I've only work the finish line. So I've seen all these crazy things at the finish line. So it means these people are pushing through crazy, crazy injuries. Um, you know, like yourself, you know, you you think you're fine the whole way and then you collapse. I know you mentioned you had a fall and you you hurt your legs and you finished, you know, so many extra miles. I know people who've ran with fractures that, you know, we're just giving medical advice. So they don't, they don't ever want to leave. Um, and I've never seen someone we've never pulled anyone off, um, who, you know, didn't want to finish.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, the last go around, um, I actually tripped over a water cup at mile 17. And then you think about it and you're like, Nine more miles to go. You knock down seventeen. There is very little that's going to get in the way of me finishing these last few miles, even if I had to crawl. Um, you know, and I, I remember looking at some of the video, and yeah, I was grimacing, but um, it, it didn't matter. Um, and and so I can only imagine um, what some of these people who maybe did have some underlying conditions, um, you know, had to go through mentally and emotionally throughout that experience. And um, you know, they're lucky to have a team like yours, um, you know, meeting them at the finish line to help them get over the hurdle. Um, I have one last thing before we kind of close this out. Yeah. You know, we talked about your founding principles. We talked about the 48 laws of power and, and the experiences you've had as an athlete. We talked about, of course, um, your experience in med school and, um, you know, how that helped, um, you know, just garner some perspective for you as you are headed into your professional career. I'd like to ask you really quick with regards to, um, you must come across so many sources of inspiration, whether it be your patients, whether it be your mentors, whether it be parents, is there any source in particular, um, that you feel played a significant role in getting to where you are today as a leader within the community?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll give you probably, you know, the stereotypical one, and then I'll give you one of, a you know, a little more abstract and the, a funner version. I mean, sure. you know, my always, parents, always like the fun one too. Let's yeah. I mean, my parents, um, have done ungodly amounts of things that unfortunately I didn't appreciate until I was younger and, you know, part of why, you know i have to acknowledge them now is you know as i've gotten more mature i can't even comprehend um how they raise us for people who don't know i have two sets of twin sisters um and i have friends now that are starting to have you know their first and their second child and to think that they had me which i'm sure was not an easy calm young boy and then a set of twins and then a year and a half later another set of twins and then raise them at the same time as raising me and all of us being given you know a good head on our shoulders you know took us to church private school when we needed it the tutoring lessons the drives back and forth to my you know private soccer academy in northport when i lived in melville and the after school stuff and the sports And then doing it equally for all five of us, you know, it's something that, I mean, I guess it's, again, unless you're thrown in that situation, you don't, you don't know. I I think of myself even independent and I think, wow, you know, that's such a struggle and there's so many challenges between that and you got all five of us to, you know, be kind and respectful and care, be empathetic. So I'd I, I have to say them. Um, in terms of, you know, who I see in the real world now that I think is, you know, pushing the boundaries and is a leader and is someone who's, you know, not afraid and confident, you know, I, I, I love seeing what Elon Musk is doing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll joke that, you know, to be the Elon Musk of medicine would be amazing, but it's it's something that, you know, you see with not only he's someone who puts an idea together and is not afraid to finish it, um, can back it up, follows maybe a little less of the rules about being, um, you know, saying less, but, you know, one of the other laws of power is to always lead by example. And I love when, you know, he has an idea or he says something It's backed up, it's objective, it's tangible, it's binary, it's a one-zero. And something comes out of that, it's you know, and his ideas are on a scale that, you know, are impactful from a culture perspective. It's one thing if you, you know, you do something and you make a lot of money and you sell a really cool product, but you know, that's that's being an entrepreneur on business. When you're impacting and you're changing cultures and civilization you know that's 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 what ancient civilizations that's what Rome and Egypt and you know all these things done and and that's why I'm you know it's it's I'm I'm inspired by that as well
0: no that's awesome that's awesome i i i can definitely agree with that sentiment that he pushes the bounds um and and he does it in a way where um he he walks the walk and, and, and doesn't just talk the talk. And, um, you know, I, I, I respect that. And I think that he's definitely someone to look out for. Um, Andrew, I want to thank you uh, for yeah. coming on board. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, it, I'm honored to have you as one of the first guests on this podcast. And I'm sure we could dive a lot deeper into a lot of these yeah. topics. Uh, and so I'd love to have you on at some other time just to kind of really dive
1: in. But thank you so much for joining No, I love this. Appreciate your time. And, you know, um, if you need another book to read to any of your listeners, Break Barriers, you know, that's that's one that I read and um, half the doctors in our ICU um, have read it and have shared it with each other since, you know, you gifted it to us during COVID. Um, So, you know, your story is just as good and appreciate you listening to mine tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the mile 40 podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the mile 40 family and let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.